0: Welcome to the Dialogues Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. This podcast features the voices of
1: Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists in an ongoing dialogue about theology and ministry. We provide Asian American ministry leaders with a forum for dialogue, support, and critical reflection on ministry by Asian Americans, especially in Asian American ecclesial contexts.
0: All right, it is one o'clock. And I want to um, honor our schedule with our next plenary speaker, who I will now introduce. Reverend Dr. Jeannie Park-Hearn is an assistant professor of practical theology and formation at Portland Seminary and is an ordained clergy in the United Methodist Church. Her ministry experiences include congregational care, hospital chaplaincy, English language ministries, and Korean American immigrant churches, in pastoral counseling and psychotherapy. Informed and shaped by these ministry contexts, she is interested in widening the scope of spiritual formation through ongoing dialogue with psychology and voices on the periphery of our attention and awareness. She lives in the Pacific Northwest with her daughter, husband, and three-year-old Minnie Aussie Doodle, and enjoys hiking, being outdoors, vegging out with Korean dramas and indulging at different Asian dessert spots. Oh, that sounds like fun. Jeannie, welcome, and the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much, David, for that introduction and for the warm and generous invitation to be a part of this gathering, um, this important conference at the seminary. I wish I could be there in person with you there. Um, I am a PTS alum. And haven't been back since I graduated years and years and years ago. So it's nice to know in my mind, I'm visualizing you all being together. And I'm also certainly really, really, really thankful for this AirMeat platform that we can connect no matter where we are uh, in this world. If you wouldn't mind um, indulging me uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes, the rice and kimchi and bulgogi part of um, the presentation, I would like to. Give us a moment to um, pause and to ground, to center, um, and to connect with the self. And I'm going to do this by way of sharing a poem from Kaveri Patel, who is a family practitioner um, who also lectures and writes on the areas of um, mindfulness and compassion. And so um, I'll just offer you a moment of silence. After i shared this poem, I'll give you another few moments to kind of sit with the words and whatever images and whatever feelings come up for you um, as I share these words from Kaveri Patel. And the name of this poem reflection is called Dear You. Dear You, you who always have so many things to do, so many places to be, your mind spinning like fan blades at high speed, each moment always a blur, because you're never still. I know you're tired. I also know it's not your fault. The constant brain buzz is like a swarm of bees threatening to sting if you close your eyes. You've forgotten something again. You need to prepare for that or else. You should have done that differently. What if you closed your eyes? Would the world fall apart without you? Or would your mind become the open sky, flock of thoughts flying across the sunrise as you just watched and smiled? Thank you for indulging me with that moment of rest. That was for me as much as it was for you. An opportunity to rest, even for a moment, um, and to sit with yourself, to connect deeply with yourself. Again, my name is Jeannie Park-Hearn, and um, I am Zooming, not Zooming, an air meeting in from Seattle, Washington. I live there with my spouse and my daughter and our three-year-old Aussie doodle named Dewey. I'm a second-generation Korean-American pastor's kid. My parents immigrated to the United States in 1968. And I'm presenting these thoughts and these ideas, these concepts um, coming from a place of privilege, a privilege of education, of resources, of relative safety growing up, the privilege of health and having access to many resources. What I have to share today is but one demonstration of spiritual formation as we might think of it from an Asian American perspective. It's one part of a bigger conversation, and I will be the last person to say that I have any conclusive thing to say about this. And I thank you for your grace and your kindness in joining me in thinking, reflecting, um, and to connecting uh, with one another and our own experience around grief and loss and formation. I want to start us off with a couple of verses from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. From the beginning of time, God has been forming. Forming out of emptiness, forming out of chaos, forming in all of these ways and in these different contexts, life took shape in myriad forms. From the depths of the oceans to the expanse of the skies and every terrain in between, God formed something out of nothing. God formed something out of chaos. And might I get really personal right away that God formed something out of our nothingness? God formed something out of our chaos. Formation is the handiwork of God, even after humanity chose to and continues to choose another path to follow, different from the graced one of connection and wholeheartedness offered by God. In rejecting life in God, ours has become fraught with turmoil, hardship, toil, and never-ending labor. Despite this and through this, by the sheer gift of God's grace, God continues to form and to shape us. Today's presentation will address this topic of spiritual formation and some of the details that come with a more fine-tuned look at the specifics about how being Asian in the United States affects our spiritual formation. Whether or not we want to acknowledge it, We are daily being formed by our surroundings. Sound bites from the news, expectations, implicitly or explicitly stated by our family, our colleagues, our advertisements that surround us, our hopes for retirement, the experience of our history. All these form us. How many of us have made a trip to the store, to Costco, to the mall, for one thing, and have come home with so much more because we were lured in by a product's packaging, a social media reel showcasing a product that we don't necessarily need, or a not yet realized but yearned for image of ourself, our family, and our home. An innocent trip to the store is but a small example of the way our tastes and our desires are formed by commercials, advertisements, and other Social media attempts to capture our imaginations and our yearnings. The same dynamic is at play on a broader scale with lasting effects on our self-esteem, the aspirations we have for our children, our loved ones, and the level of content and or discontent we have about our lives. Clamoring voices vie for the power to direct our attention and to shape who we are becoming and what our lives are being spent for. Another example of this is this doom scrolling that we do. I'm guilty of it. The doom scrolling phenomenon where we are lured and sucked into a vortex of negative messages, negative news, soundbite, and it affects our mood, our attitudes, our behaviors and our dispositions towards one another. I find that when I doom scroll, the way I show up for my spouse, for my mother, for my siblings, my daughter, for the world, it's different. I'm irritable, cranky. I have a shorter fuse. Those of us who have children who are trying to navigate how social media plays a part in their lives, we recognize the gravity around the way that our children, our nieces, our cousins, our nephews are being inundated, inundated, overwhelmed, flooded by images that come up in various mediums through social media. We are being formed. So the question isn't, am I being formed, but rather who or what is forming me? American philosopher and extensive writer on spiritual formation, Dallas Willard, has written about spiritual formation, and he has this to share. Spiritual formation in the tradition of Jesus Christ is the process of transformation of the inmost dimension of the human being, the heart which is the same as the spirit or will. It is being formed, really transformed, in such a way that its natural expression comes to be the deeds of Christ done in the power of Christ. I share this particular approach and this particular perspective on spiritual formation because I think it's quite representative of the ethos and aspiration of many of our Asian American faith communities. And so reading this, you might feel a sense of resonance, of spiritual resonance to them. And what this description is, is pointing to is familiar to us. Something else that I think is Dallas Willard, but it's also attributed to a, a, a host of um, experts in spiritual formation who talks about spiritual formation by its very nature being missional. So, what Can we, as Asian Americans, our experience nuance or flesh out specific parts of Willard's definition vis-a-vis our experience in the United States? I want to hone in on what Willard calls the inmost dimension of the human being, the heart, which is the same as the spirit or will in his words. I also want to offer a nuanced read of these descriptions from an Asian-American perspective. While I I find great value in this depiction of spiritual formation, I think it's important for us to take a closer look at the terrain of the spirit, our innermost Asian-American being, and to even push the pause button on transformation and the missional nature of spiritual formation. What is the spirit? The heart the inmost dimension of the human being. We throw this word around without giving it too much thought or consideration, and I think many of us assume that we know what it is. Unfortunately, it's the case that we cannot cut open a human being and kind of peek around and underneath organs to find the spirit, the heart, as it's understood in spiritual formation, and the will The spirit, the heart, the inmost dimension of ourselves can be understood perhaps as a source of our motivations. It's the space within us where our feelings register and from which our responses emerge. It's not our feelings, but is that space within us that motivates our response, perhaps, to feelings and emotions that we have. It is the home of our desires, and it's the place where we can experience connection to God. The heart, the spirit, our inmost parts help us make meaning of our lives and it is in the spirit, it is in the heart where we can experience that which is beyond ourselves. It is the bed of grit, of resilience, of awe, the capacity to wonder, all of these emanating from the inmost part of who we are. It is here where we experience the grace of God and the grace of God calling us beloved. Jesus Christ talks about or references what I'm trying to describe to us, this domain of the human person in the Gospel of Matthew. For Jesus spoke, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. Another person that I want to reference um, who writes poignantly about this heart space is Howard Thurman. He writes, there is in every person an inward sea, and in that sea there is an island, And on that island, there is an altar and standing guard before that altar is the angel with the flaming sword. Nothing can get by that angel to be placed upon that altar unless it has the mark of your inner authority. Nothing passes the angel with the flaming sword to be placed upon your altar unless it be a part of the fluid area of your consent. This is your crucial link with the eternal. I share this quote because I, again, wanting to try to flesh out and to concretize, to make a little bit more tangible this idea of the spirit, the heart, our inmost being, the place that we connect with our God, the place where we experience in our bodies, in our spirit, in our souls, our belovedness. What I want to say, however, and I want to stay as real as I I can be, because oftentimes I think, especially those of us who are in Asian American Christian circles, we want to get past the sadness, the grief, the loss, the pain, the struggle, the turmoil. We want to get to Easter Sunday right away. And there's value, there's reason, there's a rationale for staying in the Good Friday moments as much as possible, because dare we say the possibility is that God is as powerfully present in Good Friday moments, in our connection, in our stories of loss, of grief, and trauma. The inmost dimension, the heart of many Asian Americans, is fraught with loss. Grief, trauma that spans decades and generations. Why generations? Because we are fundamentally relational. The imprint of generations of poverty, war, violence, migrations, addiction, marital strife, death, dot the landscape of our inmost being. From the moment our existence was dreamed up in the yearnings of our parents and our months in utero, to the sticky bonds that carry us through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and our twilight years, we are relational. Jessica's presentation earlier gave us a rich account of how our parents' stories, our grandparents' stories are commingled with our own's and how do we find ways of connecting those images, those memories, those experiences, those intergenerational pain points? These show up in our present, and they fuel us also into the future. I want to spend a little bit of time elaborating on grief and spiritual formation from an Asian-American vantage point. Grief. Our families, our faith communities, our very bodies hold stories of loss and grief related to migration Immigration and our experiences here in the United States as bodies that look a particular way and that have been constructed in a particular way. Uncomfortable memories of harassment, struggles to fit in, questions about belonging, feeling misunderstood, invisibility, and messages about who we are and who we're supposed to be have been collected, mixed, and compressed together to form our individual and collective identities. The intensity, strain, and weight of these pain points and memories shape how we see ourselves, strengthen our efforts to silence our critics, fuel the compulsion to excel, form our worldviews that mark who's in and who's out, and drive the unrelenting desire to control so that we can protect. All these are attempts to deal with the discomfort of our loss and grief. I want to share personally just to model what it looks like to kind of be vulnerable and to connect with stories of grief and loss. I have an early memory of my of accompanying my mother and my grandmother to the airport in Nashville, Tennessee. My grandmother had been with us visiting for I don't remember how long. But if I remember correctly, it's the first time that my mom saw her mother Since she had immigrated to the United States in 1968. I remember distinctly the outline of my mom's body. I was behind her and she was up against the window looking at the plane where my grandmother was now sitting. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so sad. Number one, how long has it been that my mom saw her mom? And number two, when's the next time she's going to see her? And so this image is sort of like seared on my brain and my heart. My mother missing her mother. My mother's loss of connection with her mother because the miles and miles that separated her and my grandmother. Another memory, I remember seeing my dad on the phone. He was on the phone and speaking in his broken English with somebody on the other line who was a fluent fluent English speaker. And he looked at my father's face as he was trying to communicate something that was important, and he just couldn't get the words out. His face was contorted. I could see the frustration, the furrow of his brow, the grimace on his face as he knew he was not being understood that he couldn't get out the words in the way that he needed to. In that moment and seeing his struggle and his frustration, I think I was recalling or I remember thinking, why are we even here? Why have we moved to the United States? Why does my dad have to experience this type of frustration on simply a phone conversation? Deep sadness for my parents became sort of like overlaid on my life. I was born in the United States. English is my second language. And yet, at the same time, because they were my beloved parents, there was this sense of deep sadness for them that I carried with me since those days of my childhood and adolescence. So, what happened to me is that I began to overfunction for them. If this is the sacrifice that they made, and that was the narrative that I heard, and I imagine many of us have heard, those of us who are Asian-American children of immigrants I overfunctioned for them. Why? Because I wanted to make their sacrifice matter. And in my overfunctioning for them, being the best daughter that I could be, performing well in school, all those things were supposed to somehow mitigate the sadness and the feeling of disconnection, the frustration, the despair of my parents. I had to somehow make up for that. And I think there was something about my over-functioning for them, motivated and compelled by my sadness for them, caused me to lose connection with myself so that I could become what they wanted. Again, folks, this wasn't something that was explicitly stated. It was something I absorbed in the air and the atmosphere of my family. And somehow in my mind and in my heart space, I made the decision to overfunction for them. And yeah, they probably helped that cause by holding up to me the type of student I was supposed to be. But that's for a little bit later. I call those of us who are children of parents who immigrated as the hinge generation because we feel the squeeze from at least two sources of pressure folding in on a point and functioning to turn the turn the tide of our family history towards something brighter and something better. And my question for us is, what has it cost us to function in this capacity? So we grieve and we cope. I coped. Many of us cope by over-functioning. And yet there's more. Kenneth Doka is a grief expert, a mental health counselor, a professor of gerontology, and he has done some work in what he calls disenfranchised grief. This is grief that is not fully acknowledged, recognized, and validated because of societal rules and mores, cultural expectations, and historical circumstances. We hear the disenfranchising of our grief and statements like this. I shouldn't cry. You shouldn't be sad. I should be over this loss by now. Loss of pets is one area wherein our grief is disenfranchised. And those of you who have furry animals that are part of your family and you have experienced the loss of a beloved pet, you may have heard somebody say to you, or at least insinuate, I can't believe you're still sad. After all, it was only an animal. So what, what happens? We shut down our very feelings about this family member that we had. We have lost someone to suicide. This might be something that we cannot fully grieve, especially in public, in community, where we're supposed to potentially experience the support and the love and the care of people in our midst. No, the shame and the stigma is still too strong. So if we have lost someone to suicide, we hide. We pick and choose where we can Grieve. And we bear even more pain because the grief that we have is invalidated, is rendered invisible, it is pushed to the margin, it is shamed. Gender socialization. We have all kinds of scripts about who can grieve in particular ways. This shapes the way that we encounter our own experiences. I want to add to this that Asian American migration and immigration grief is also disenfranchised. If you have heard the model minority myth, something that was coined in 1966 by a sociologist by the name of William Peterson to describe Japanese Americans as successful and a hardworking immigrant group. This myth that circulates within Asian American communities in different kinds of ways in our families, in our relationships, it can distract our attention away from legitimate sorrow and grief by luring us into this compulsive drive to be successful, to be this, to be that, to shame us into silence if we have anything to be otherwise than the model minority. And so, if we don't fit the script of what a minor, model minority is supposed to be, there must be something wrong with me. So what do I do if I struggle, if I have pain, if loss is real, grief is real? No, I don't have a reason to complain. Or maybe people might say we don't have a reason to complain because after all, we left this horrible motherland in order to be here in the United States, this land flowing with milk and honey. So get with the program, succeed, excel, be a model minority. For many of our Asian American parents and grandparents, the frenzied pace to make it has pushed out any space to feel, to acknowledge what is going on with me. In 2006, Rebecca White Kim published a book called God's New Wiz Kids, Korean American Evangelicals on Campus. I remember thinking when I saw that title, oh great. Now I have to like be the best Christian ever. I have to be an exceptional Christian. So not only did I have to be exceptional in my school, I now have to be exceptional in my faith. No part of my identity, not even my walk with Christ, is exempt from the harsh gaze of my over-functioning model minority self. What are the other rules and mores and expectations that impede our capacity to recognize and validate lost? In Asian Americans. Well, our faith, I'm sorry, it has something to do with this too. We have very clear ideas and attitudes about grief that come from our Christian beliefs and our worldview. After all, God has turned my morning into dancing. So if I and we need so so therefore I and we need to move on. If I'm sad, depressed, anxious, something must clearly be wrong with me. So I've got to. Overfunction some more in my faith walk to turn my mourning into dancing. Those of us who are second generation may recall stifling our grief as we thought about, again, the sacrifice of our parents, the life of hardship that they endure, the unrelenting hours that they needed to work in order for the family to serve. In order for the family to know a better life, now I don't want to say this too lightly, but we re- we also minimize our own grief. And again, not because we are bad people and but rather, maybe our grief is just too painful. Maybe our parents' grief is too hard for them to revisit again. It's too traumatic. and so maybe that's why we don't acknowledge our grief and our loss. For some of us, incidents of Asian American hate leave us confused and grappling with questions akin to the loss of sense of safety, belonging, inclusion, and we're haunted by this question, like, why are we still not accepted? Haven't we achieved the American dream? Aren't we model citizens? Aren't we contributing to our neighborhoods? Aren't we good people? Where on earth do I, do we belong? Where is home? All this is too much. And the human mind, the human heart, finds a way to keep going and to not be bogged down by all this reality. We stuff anything that's painful, too difficult to face, into the proverbial closet and... We do this lovely thing of constructing a false self. First, this closet. When unexpected guests come over, what do we do? Our house is a mess. We still have to be kind of presentable. So we shove things into the closet. At our house, it's the um, laundry room pantry area. And so everything goes in there. And then I shut the door. We don't want to face the harsh stories of our life, the grief, the loss. And so we push them into the closet, shut the door, hoping that it will not spring open out of the pressure that's on the other side. The other thing that we do is we construct something that's called a false self. And This is the persona that we create to fit the mold of expectations held by our parents, our children, our friends, our spouses, our bosses, our coworkers, by the world, in order to feel relatively safe in a dangerous world and to project to the world what we want them to see about us. It's usually further removed from the person that we are when we don't have to perform, when we feel most alive, and when we don't have to worry about judgment and the harsh gaze of others. And as an example, and since we're talking about grief, and connected to what I shared earlier, my false self, my overfunctioning self, Is fiercely independent. She's cerebral, success-oriented, so that I don't have to feel sadness. I don't have to feel my parents' sadness so that I can cover up what I truly feel and to continue to project into the world what I want people to see about me. My effort to maintain the false self is enough to fill my days. To keep up with her to keep close tabs on the closet door that's holding all of these memories and these images and these stories. All of that requires an enormous amount of energy and we're left ragged with too little energy, motivation to tend to the heart, to tend to the spirit, the very place of connection with God, the rock of my being. The source. My heart, my spirit is left to the wayside. These coping responses to grief are enough to compel a production oriented, feverishly tempoed lifestyle and a way of being that sidelines opportunities to acknowledge the gamut of our experiences and to name our loss and grief. We disconnect from our lived experience and curtail any consideration that God may actually meet us in these. This is the reason why I mentioned earlier that I want to push the pause button on anything that's missional about spiritual formation. Because it takes us away from the here and now of our feeling states, our experiences, the way that we process our memories, the stories that we want to tell. Missional means like we're already thinking about something out there, changing the world, changing myself, being transformed into the image of God, all lovely and beautiful things that Christian folks, the Christian community is all about. At the same time, we need to keep our attention towards moving away again from connection with the self connection with one another this is why i want to pause before we talk about anything more missional anything that's about being transformed why because our great our our, our inmost being our hearts our will our desire we are yearning for connection with more than us with one another and with the god who created us, and who called us beloved. The ministry of spiritual formation is to connect with, to tend to our innermost being, our heart, our spirit, so that we can experience the grace of God, to be anchored in our belovedness, to relish in it, to experience the balm in it, And to be missional and to be transformed is a result of the grace in the here and the now. Missional transformation, being a disciple of Christ, again, all wonderful things about our faith. However, these are a natural outgrowth of our deep connection with the one who calls us beloved the one who created us to be the image of God, bearers of God's image. And my question to us all is, can we leave the rat race of the false self that the false self has thrust upon us long enough to hear ourselves, long enough to hear our yearnings, to experience our spirit, our heart, and to connect with others? We can, through chalice community, In a chalice culture, a central practice and identifying feature of the church is Holy Communion. Through bread and wine, the faith community remembers Christ's ultimate sacrificing and giving his life. And the chalice represents this cup of life in Jesus the Christ. The chalice community recognizes the inmost part, the spirit, the heart in people, and is deliberate about nurturing connection and wholeness by being attuned to the Spirit of God. A chalice community recognizes that it is a vessel of God's grace, where individuals embody God's love. In chalice community, we are animating, bringing to life, making tangible the gift of God's grace, just as Jesus needed to teach in parables to make things understandable for the disciples and those in his midst. And just as Jesus Christ incarnates God, who is mystery and beyond our wildest imagination, Jesus Christ incarnates God so that we can understand even a glimmer, a glimpse of who our God is. In the same way, a chalice community in sharing stories, in being open to grief stories, we open up ourselves to incarnate all of those things about God to one another so that we can show up, powerfully be present to one another in our loss and grief. Chalice communities stop and they pause to acknowledge the spirit and heart in one another. And we set the conditions for telling our stories because telling our stories isn't always easy. A chalice community invites us to show up We showing up for one another without judgment, to accept with no strings attached, and to remain as other-focused as we can, to be present and to extend grace so that we can tell our stories. Chalice communities value stories because these have the power to, to connect us to ourselves, to connect us to one another. And to invite the possibility that in the telling of our grief stories, our stories of loss, we will not crumble because God meets us there and we will be held. The child's community in some ways makes concrete and bears witness to God's compassion and steadying presence and we incarnate these for one another. Remember the attributes of the false self? Many Asian American false selves do not want to be vulnerable with our stories. And while the false self is ready to turn mourning into dancing, by shoving grief and loss into the closet, telling our stories of grief can turn mourning into, into an act of faith because we step into the pain of our stories, into the stories of one another believing that God meets us therein. I want to wrap things up here as best as I can with just a few questions that I want us to continue to reflect upon. And again, I in no way, shape, or form have done anything conclusive here, but just again, offering you some things to think about um, food for thought. What kind of church culture and family culture do we want to be? What would it be like for our families, our churches, and our faith communities to pause? and to stop its activities? What would it be like to practice Sabbath by storytelling, to pause long enough to be present with one another and to hear people out? When is the last time I connected with my heart, my inmost being? And how do the ministries of our churches, how does our family lifestyle make it possible For us to reach our hearts and to reach the hearts of others. Thank you, and I'm going to turn it over to David. Thank you for listening to the Dialogues Podcast. The Center for Asian American Christianity invites you to join our ongoing conversation on Asian American identity, faith, theology, and ministry through the Dialogues Magazine, the Dialogues in Asian American Theology, and Ministry Public Gatherings, the Annual Mental Health Conference and the annual Asian American Theology Conference. You can find more information and sign up for our newsletter at caac.ptsem.edu.